The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 88. The only, only difference between a prophet and a heretic is time. And every prophet begins being labeled as a heretic. Thanks be to God. Y'all, we have a real hero on the podcast today. The Reverend Dr. Yvette A. Flunder is an unapologetic disciple and proponent of the radically inclusive love of Jesus Christ, who has raised her voice for justice from the church house to the White House and steps of the Supreme Court. A native San Franciscan and third-generation preacher with roots in the Church of God in Christ, Bishop Flunder, who's ordained in both the United Church of Christ and the Metropolitan Community Church, has successfully united the message of the gospel with social justice ministry and action for over 30 years. In the mid-1980s, responding to the needs of the AIDS epidemic, Bishop Flunder and her staff opened Hazard Ashley House and Walker House in Oakland and Restoration House in San Francisco through the Ark of Refuge, a nonprofit agency which provided housing, direct services, education, and training for persons affected by HIV-AIDS in the Bay Area, throughout the USA, and in three countries in Africa. The Ark of Refuge then transitioned into the Y.A. Flunder Foundation, which continues the work of social justice exemplified through service and public advocacy. Bishop Flunder has served as a board member of the National Sexuality Resource Center and as an active voice for the Human Rights Campaign, as well as co-chair for the Religious Advisory Committee of the National Black Justice Coalition. She has also served as a board member of the Shanti Project, as chair of the San Francisco Interreligious Coalition on AIDS, chair of the Black Adoption Placement and Research Center, founding member of the African American Interfaith Alliance on AIDS, a member of the San Francisco HIV AIDS Planning and Prevention Council, a consultant to the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust, and as a member of the California Ryan White Working Group. In 2011, she received a Robert C. Kirkwood Community Leadership Award from the San Francisco Community Foundation. Bishop Flunder has served as adjunct professor and speaker at numerous seminaries and universities, including Auburn, Bright Divinity, Chicago Theological, Columbia University, Drew, Duke, Eden, Howard, 
Lancaster, New York Theological, Pacific School of Religion, and Yale. A much sought-after and prophetic preacher, educator, and justice advocate, Flunder is also a renowned gospel music artist who, in 2012, received the Heritage Out Music Award from the LGBT Academy of Recording Arts. In December of 2014, Bishop Flunder served as the keynote speaker for the White House observation of the 26th anniversary of World AIDS Day. True to her call, she continues being a prophetic and progressive Christian voice and leader in the movement of justice for all of God's children, from the streets of Oakland to the halls of national government and international shores. I wanted to read like the long version of Bishop Flunder's bio for you, just so you know who I'm talking to. <laughs> she is someone who has done so much work in our community and has been a fierce advocate for us um, and for intersectional approaches to justice for for longer than I've been alive. Uh, and that wasn't even like the long version of her bio. <laughs> She's written a book. Uh, she was portrayed in Dustin Lance Black's uh, miniseries, When We Rise. Uh, she's done a lot of work with President Obama. Um, she gets into a little bit of that in this episode. Um, I don't have any announcements this week, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Bishop Flunder, welcome. Thank you so much, Matthias. I appreciate the invitation. So so this is a question I start every episode with. How do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Well, I'm a woman of African-American descent. Uh, the part of the greater part of me <laughs> I'm also, by the way, a part a Cherokee and Irish. It's an interesting mix going on inside of me at the same time. Uh, I also identify as a person of faith. I was raised uh, and nurtured in the African-American Pentecostal tradition, Southern-influenced Pentecostal tradition, but born in San Francisco, California. I am a same-gender-loving woman, specifically I've been in partnership and uh, love relationship with my now spouse, Shirley Miller, for 35 years, which is very exciting to me. Uh, I am also uh, a justice warrior in terms of how I, uh, how I consider myself uh, and how I show up in the world and concerned about multiple justice issues that have intersections in very interesting ways. And my faith is informed because I consider myself a disciple of Jesus Christ and particularly a disciple uh, of the heretical part of Jesus <laughs> that has everything to do with speaking truth to power, both to religion and empire. And that's more or less uh, how I view myself. The heretical part of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I, I love that. Can you talk more about that, especially kind of how that relates to justice work? Well, I consider uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the earthly ministry of Jesus, a, a Palestinian Jew, essentially, who spoke into the combination, the insidious combination of empire and religion that eventually captured him and murdered him, martyred him in many ways. And I believe that he was heretical because, uh, and by the way, his, his heretical side frustrated the leaders of his time because it drew the people away from their uh, religion 
and the abuses of those religions that siphoned off their uh, money, siphoned off their power, controlled them in various ways, and the ways in which that faith path also was in league with empire, and that those two powers together, uh, Jesus spoke against the ways in which they were abusive to people. And I'm sure eventually that was the reason that he was killed. But that kind of of heretical uh, faith path that pushes back against abusive religion and empire simultaneously is very much uh, who Gandhi was, who Martin King was, and just about my, in so many ways, uh, Nelson Mandela, I could go on and on, but that is why I feel close to the ministry of Jesus Christ and consider myself a disciple of a heretic. It, 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 just one aside, every real prophet begins as a heretic. And I am grateful to be numbered among them. I mean, when, when we were talking kind of before we started recording, I mean, you were talking about the need to have a theology that leads towards justice, a, a theology of justice. And I mean, it makes me think of, um, are you familiar with like Roderick Greer's work? Yes. With Roderick, yeah. I mean, he talks about how, how theology, I don't think this is original to him, but theology cannot be done in ivory towers, but it must work on the ground. Yes. Um, and that's where my mind's going. Like this need for a different kind of theology than, than what's present in, in a lot of churches here yes. in the, here in the U S today, for sure. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, the thing about, uh, and I say this as a practitioner of faith, uh, but you know, I am also able to interrogate and, and interpret what it is that is religion in our time. And the great tendency to silo, to become fundamentalist, even when we say we're not, <laughs> has uh, a system, several systems of belief, belief systems, all essentially in the same field, but all in separate silos. And those silos uh, judge each other and critique each other and spend an enormous amount of time uh, being faithful to what is their belief system, which fundamentally also suggests that there is something problematic about the belief system in the silo that's next door. <laughs> and it leaves an enormous amount of justice work undone because it takes a lot of energy to maintain a fundamentalist silo. When I add that to the fact that a lot of what influences those realities is our, uh, particularly as Christians, but sometimes as Muslims and some of the other faiths that I interact with, has to do with our eschatology, our eschatological view or our um, end of life view or, or our believing that God or through Jesus or some other methodology is going to come back and blow the whole earth up, you know, <laughs> tends to, to lend uh, us 
to move toward not caring so much about the here and now with a greater focus on the afterlife. So we have a bunch of faith paths that are not really focused on the work that we are called to do. Jesus said, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the on earth part that sometimes gets lost in the desire to prepare people for an afterlife. And the earth, literally, and the earth as it relates to humankind, gets neglected in that kind of fundamentalist thinking or in that kind of religiosity. So that's a very real uh, close uh, reality for me. And I had a shift in my life that moved me to understand that my responsibility is to bring the realm of God, the kingdom of God, into the earth. That was my responsibility, not to spend all my time trying to get people ready for the by and by. It's about the here and now. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking about like just, just knowing parts of your story, just little bits of it, of, of especially thinking back to like the AIDS crisis in the late 80s, early 90s, and, and kind of your work being just on the ground, caretaking, pastoring. I mean, it, it seems like, as we kind of talk about these two different kinds of theological <laughs> mm-hmm. views of, of eschatology, of, of, of a future to come versus on the ground right now, like, this is work that, you, that you've been involved in for longer than a lot of people who are listening to this this podcast longer than I've been alive. Um, It's born out of experience. Um, Could you tell us some stories? Well, I've been engaged in uh, the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic, pandemic, uh, since the early 80s. And uh, during that time period, as I call uh, the dying years, it wasn't unusual uh, in San Francisco uh, to have, you know, two or three funerals a week. And I truly was, you know, suffering emotionally from what I would call multiple loss syndrome, much, much like what happens during time of, of uh, active war in countries where people were, were dying all around you. And then th- what went along with that was this constant uh, theological uh, rhetoric about God being angry <clears throat> with the LGBT community and that this was uh, God's uh, retribution for people being gay. And it was very painful because I knew people um, in the LGBT community that were both in and out of church, uh, people who were involved in the arts and in music, and I could go on and on. And people who were preachers and pastors who were living with uh, HIV and dying with HIV. And I remember uh, falling into what might best be described, uh, multiple loss syndrome, depression. And one day (laughs) I turned on to what I call wrist cutting music, some old uh, Donny Hathaway's music, and poured myself a, a rather significant uh, glass of bourbon 
and turned the lights off and got ready to stage a complete pity party because it was just a dark time. And in the midst of that, I was illumined by uh, the call to get actively engaged and involved in the epidemic. And I began to understand that I was accomplishing nothing, just uh, being broken. What I needed to do was push back and start working to both give comfort to the people who were infected, but also to start working toward improving uh, our response to the epidemic comprehensively. And I must say, I did turn Donny Hathaway off and I did turn the lights back on. I did finish my bourbon, too. That's the other part of it. <laughs> and, and so I got up from there and started working with some folks to uh, begin. Uh, we had a bit of an underground clinic that uh, we were using what was called then Compound Q, which was the, the predecessor to AZT. Uh, and it wasn't approved altogether yet, but we were able to help some people uh, early on, eventually. Uh, and some of those people are still alive, by the way. And then we went from one thing to another. I was a part of ACT UP, you know, to help us get access to drugs, part of the uh, Ryan White money, part of the group of people who push for the minority AIDS initiatives. Uh, and uh, I've been a lot, spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. with the, our elected officials and as a, as a, uh, advisor to the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, brain, health brain trust. I could go on and on and on. It's been almost 30 years of work. But what I really realized is I had to get beyond this thing of thinking that this was the result of an angry God. And as I have said many times, HIV is an equal opportunity virus. And it has affected and infected women, uh, children, men, people straight and gay, people black, white, and every other hue uh, in the world. And if God was angry only at one community, it would seem that this angry God would direct that anger to that one community and not just kill people scattershot. Uh, HIV, the virus itself, did not kill all of the people who died from the complications. Denial, an absence of an early response, and religious misinformation has done more to kill people with HIV across the world than the virus itself could possibly have done. And so I have been engaged in this for a long time uh, because it's a perfect storm. If a retrovirus is going to really proliferate, you know, put it in the hands of people who say that it is the will of God that it happened. And it becomes extremely complicated to do what needs to be done. But that has been our work. And we have made some incredible strides. We don't have a cure. We talk about PrEP, but that is, PrEP is not a cure. We don't have a cure. We are still needing to work toward finding a cure to do more than make the virus manageable. We need to have it eradicated.
particularly in the countries where we're not even talking about uh, gay as a great concern, because that is where the country, those are the places where the huge numbers, we're talking about the continent of Africa, talking about more cases in Asia. I mean, I could go on and on, but there's a huge need to find a cure. But that's sort of where my heart has been around HIV. And I could tell you, my personal involvement began with the ministry of touch because so many people, their parents, their families, their church members would not touch them. And I have had the experience. I have watched, I have watched uh, folks that I have loved when their eyes would fix and dilate. I have picked people up and carried them and put them in my car to take them to the hospital. And I had to lift them myself because the ambulances wouldn't come because they were afraid of touching people. And once you understand and, and how the virus was transmitted, you understood that touch has absolutely nothing to do with passing the virus from one person to another. But so many people, their families, their friends, they wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't breathe the air in the room with them. And they would not touch them. Touch. That was what was such an important healing force during that time. You said earlier, like, I, I was accomplishing nothing by being broken. That, that kind of sense of wanting to hide in a hole and, 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 and like feel everything. Like, that, I feel like that's such a natural kind of response. And, it, it, you're talking about being then moved to action. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I feel like, I mean, as we're sitting now kind of today in, in other variations of religious misinformation of people turning their, turning their faces away, people not wanting to touch their queer kids. Like, yes. um, I mean, it's similar and very different. Um, but, but it's so easy to want to go turn off the lights <laughs> And yes. just feel discouraged. Um, I mean, for those of us who are kind of feeling that right now, like, how do how do we move to action? I would I would uh, love to share with you um, sort of my experience, my story with my mother, who was a strong Pentecostal woman, who was a true fundamentalist, and had a real uh, theology of sin <clears throat> and hell, a strong theology. And when my mother and I had the conversation about my being a same gender loving woman, my mother stopped talking to me for a period of years. Um, when we did speak, it was always, you know, cursory, polite, but uh, strained. And my mother and I are born on the same day, uh, 20, 22 years apart. <laughs> and she's passed away now. But my mom, uh, to lose my mom and my relationship with my mom uh, was very painful. It was difficult for me. It was difficult for my mother. But she couldn't cross that water. <clears throat> it sort of chokes me up a bit still. She couldn't cross that water. Uh, to fully affirm me as a same gender loving person. 
And so <clears throat> what she did was isolate me um, in hopes that I would come to myself, that I would miss her and the camaraderie of family and come to myself. And I have to say that it was painfully difficult. I would want to say to the parents that are perhaps listening to us is it does not work. That's important for me to say. Because uh, isolation does not heal. That's important. It's a, and it's a wicked punishment between people who genuinely love each other. And my mother, I believe, genuinely loved me. I think she was just trying to figure out how to help me to shift and change. And long story short, <clears throat> my mother, at the distance from her, was complicated and difficult for me. And I prayed about it. And I asked God, what can I do? Short of lying to my mother or pretending like I am, uh, you know, shifting and changing. What can I, what, in terms of my sexuality, what can I do? And it dawned on me one day. One word came up in my mind. Shopping. And I knew how much my mother loved to shop. I called my mother on a Monday morning. I said, so mom, how are you doing? So she gave me that terse kind of response. You know, she said, fine. I said, great. Okay, well, I want to come pick you up. She said, what are we going to be doing? And I said, I want to take you shopping. So there was a long pause to which she said, where are we going? I said, all mm. right, to myself. <laughs> so I got in the car and I went and got my mother because I knew where she liked to go. Mm -hmm. And I took her shopping. And at first the atmosphere was tense. Once we got shopping, you know, things lightened up. We didn't have theological conversations or conversations about human sexuality or anything. We just talked about the stuff that we were shopping for, you know, and a few other lightweight things I took her home. And then we started doing this routinely. I went and picked her up, took her shopping, hung out with her. Eventually she began to ask me questions. She began to sort of probe into where I was theologically about many things. Then eventually we got down to the conversation about human sexuality. And we talked and we talked and we talked and we talked. We talked about sexuality or the absence of sexuality in a positive way in the Bible. We talked about Paul. We talked about the absence of any of the writers giving um, eros to Jesus at all in the Bible. It's like he's very human, but he never had any passion. <laughs> for another human being, which was an interesting dynamic. So we kept talking, kept talking, kept talking. Finally, one day she told me, shut up, Yvette. I said, okay. She said, because if what we are talking about today is true, she said, I've spent my whole life, 60 years of it at least, believing things that I did not have to believe. She said, and you do understand that makes me feel like a fool. And I said, Mama, you have put your finger on probably 
the most authentic reason why people cannot change. When you have believed something all of your life and you have given your life to believing it, and then someone comes along and perhaps you have an aha moment, it makes it seem like you have lived all of those years essentially uselessly or somehow or other it's too late to change, too late to shift. And I said to her, I said, you may have believed some things for 60 years of your life, but you're not dead. You're still alive. And if you want to expand, essentially theologically, you can do that. You're not in prison. You're not held by anything. So she didn't talk to me again for a few weeks. She shut me down. She didn't. Not long after that, though, I heard her ringing the doorbell. So I told Shirley, I said, that's mama. Because she ring the doorbell, go ding, 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 ding. I said, that's her. Nobody else does that but mama. I went and opened the door, and there was mama. Starch Pentecostal, my mother. I'd never even seen her in a pair of pants. There she was standing at my door. She had bought herself a J-Lo pants suit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she, she had a she had a hat on that had sequins all on on it and tennis shoes with these little dealy bobs jewelry on the tennis shoes. Now I want you to know any any Pentecostals that are listening to us right now understand that this is really not Pentecostal my mama uh-huh. had on that, right? <laughs> so I said, so mama, how, how you doing? She said, Well, I just came by to let you know. I'm free. And from that day forward, we had some of the most wonderful, uh, revealing, powerful conversations about everything. Everything. We opened up, we discussed everything with uh, the full freedom moving beyond this business of, you know, that we cannot unlearn and relearn. We cannot evolve. Everything evolves. You know, we talked, you know, from flip phones to iPhones, everything evolves. Why can't you evolve theologically as well? And it's never too late to evolve. And I'll tell you one more thing. One day she asked me the hard question. She said, Yvette, she said, what do lesbians do? I want you to know that was probably the hardest conversation I'd ever had in my life. I said, mama, I can't talk to you about that. <laughs> she said, oh, yeah. She said, we're going to talk about this. She said, because I can't figure it out. <laughs> and I tell you, I tell you and our listeners uh, what a tough job it was. I, I said, Mama, this is not, I have to get you some books. She said, no, I, don't, I want you to tell me. She said, because all I understand, this is what my mother said to me, all I understand is holes and poles. <laughs> okay, so you can do the rest with your imagination. I said, Mama, this is not a... So, but she hung me up like a half day having these conversations, uh, trying to figure out something other than what she had experienced, which is so vital, and something other than what she deemed in her mind was possible in terms of the length and breadth, not only of uh, human sexuality, but also 
uh, the, the length and breadth and of, of non-binary concepts that it's not either black or white. You know, women are not from Venus and men from Mars. You know, even in the same gender community, the, the whole concept of putting people in packages and saying everybody over here is like this and everybody over here is like that. The, the, the family of God is such a beautiful garden and so fluid in so many different ways. If we could just get that, we would stop stereotyping people in so many ways. So my mama became uh, the prayer warrior for our conference. We call it that. She came to the fellowship and she met us in the mornings early around eight o'clock on what we call the prayer altar. And we would pray. She would pray with us and she would pray for us. And in so many ways, she was the prayer foundation for what has become the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries. We owe her because every morning in our conferences, she prayed with us. Pastors, leaders, parents, young people. It was so powerful to have her engaged. And I can say, as a same gender loving woman, sometimes we forget in the LGBT community that when we come out, we force our parents to have to come out too. Essentially, their friends and colleagues judge them oftentimes and ridicule them because we're same gender loving. And one of the ways in which I think our community really does need to mature is to understand and empathize with what our parents had to experience. They, they didn't choose to come out, but they have to, to some degree, and have to feel the pain <clears throat> of come outings, if you understand. Because their, their, their friends and their constituencies ridicule them and suggest that they are deficient because we are same gender loving. We need to care about that. And we need to also thank them and appreciate them for the degree to which they are able to support us. That's what will demonstrate our maturity as same gender loving people when we embrace this process for our parents as well. I love my mother while she sleeps in Jesus. I love my mother because my mother's journey to be my greatest supporter cost her a whole lot. She paid a significant price in her denomination to be my champion. But every time I do something out here, Matthias, every time I put my hand on something, every time I put my voice on something, some justice issue, I have my mother standing in my back, making me feel that if she, if she could take on that task and do it beautifully and graciously and powerfully, I have got to keep her aura, her spirit, her presence close by me to help me to continue to do what it is I'm called to do. Thank you for asking about it, by the way. Uh, that's such a, a powerful story. 
And it, and it like all started with shopping. <laughs> I, started with shopping. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that speaks to just how powerful like the little things can be. Yes. I mean, that, that those little movements towards relationship. Yes. Um, and and how that can change everything. So, so you were you were telling me also before we kind of started recording, like how how oftentimes like in, in faith communities we talk about justice issues. When you talk about justice issues, everything kind of comes back to being same gender loving. Mm-hmm. How that was how that used to be frustrating, and, and now you use it as an an open door to talk about intersectionality of justice. Um, mm-hmm. it, that, that made me kind of think of accepting ourselves as same gender loving as as queer as lgbt how that can be an open door to looking outward looking outside of ourselves of, of kind of having to step outside of the norm um mm-hmm. i i would love if you could maybe put some more language around that that intersectionality of justice of of, of what it looks like to walk through that door yes i think that the, the best way for me to describe the, the evolution for me uh, means I need to begin with saying I am deeply grateful that I am a same gender loving woman. Um, I didn't choose it. It chose me. But I am very grateful to have been chosen to be a same gender loving woman because I suspect had I not been there's I would be very much uh, still connected to a belief system that uh, in so many ways would not have encouraged me to be engaged in multiple justice issues. So I, it, it was being exiled. Um, it was the power of my otherness. And otherness is something that I have come to, to deeply thank God for. And sometimes I say it to people this way, not everybody can really be gay. (laughs) 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 So, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, know, it's only a certain percentage of the population (laughs) that can bear up under this, you know, (laughs) it's because it can't be a tough road to hoe, you know, at times. But I have. I have really reached a point where I'm really grateful to God to be chosen to blur certain lines because blurring those lines around sexuality and gender and uh, in many ways race and culture, and I could go on and on and on, uh, began with my being able to accept the fact that I'm a same gender loving woman. It was my job, my, 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 jump off point. It was my realizing that I really was going to have to look for another path because I am other. Either that or I was going to have to lie. And I could not imagine that God would have called me to ministry and advocacy and then require me to lie. That's an oxymoron to me. Because God knew it was me when God called me. You know, God didn't make a mistake, you know, skip, you know, come to the wrong house, (laughs) call the wrong number, right? (laughs) The God that made me knew it was me. Mm -hmm. And I would say that my otherness 
has been the greatest blessing in my life in terms of causing me to have justice consciousness. Um, and I, I begin there by saying that it moved me to open my eyes to other marginalities, to the ways that women are treated, to the ways that immigrant people are treated, poor people are treated, people with um, all sorts of emotional and mental health issues are treated, people who have poor access to health care are treated. I could go on and on and on. I began to see the intersections from one justice issue to another from the place of my otherness. That's why I thank God for it. Every day, I'm grateful. And I have never uh, had a desire to, to go back to a place of being, uh, how can I say, uh, uh, of fitting perfect, perfectly in the status quo. Or, or trying to fit. It's, it's kind of sort of like uh, good hair and bad hair. I'm a person of African descent and I have naturally curly, kinky hair, my own hair. And my people for a period of years, when I was a kid coming along, used to, to buy um, preparations that we put on our skin and face to lighten our skin. And then preparations that we used in our hair to straighten our hair. Because we were pulling toward a status quo that said that the more we look like European people, the more we look like white people, the more beautiful we are. That because the status quo was to try to look as white as you could, because that was beautiful and powerful, and you would have more opportunities and things of that nature. And and it took some years for people of African descent to begin to celebrate being African and celebrate our kinky hair. Well, now we got all kind of kinky hairstyles, you know, just lots of kinkiness going on all over the place, you know. <laughs> but, but that wasn't true when I was coming along. The pull was toward what seemed to be the status quo or the, or the, the powerful people and how those people looked. If we couldn't be them, at least we could try to look more like them. Well, at some point, the same I think is true about celebrating many things about who we are so that we can have an eye toward not being engaged with trying to be uh, someone else, but being grateful for the who we are, what does it do? It helps us to really see other people and who they are. You know, it's a full-time job trying to be somebody that you're not. It is a powerful thing when you can become content and grateful with who you are because it also opens up your eyes to who other people are. So justice became intersectional with me at the point at which I began to celebrate my otherness. And I began to see, brother, I began to see that all of these issues are connected. And they have the same root. Racism, fragile patriarchy, elitism, 
exceptionalism, manifest destiny. The root is the same. Power. It's the same root. It shows up. It shows up because we are all colonized to some degree by some power base, some power over dynamic. And again, whether it's race or what I call a fragile, because I don't, I don't have an issue with patriarchy. I have an issue with fragile, unfeigned patriarchy. <laughs> uh, and issues of way, the ways in which uh, exceptionalism and elitism leads to colonialism, which, which takes away people's uh, rights, human rights and dignity, creates uh, classism and case systems. All of these things are intersectional all over the world, everywhere these realities exist. So I guess I, ha- I have, from my otherness, been able to, and, and I'll tell you something funny. Um, when, when we had the last real president in the United States, I'll put it yes. that <laughs> I used to go to the White House quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, they would need to have certain people at the White House. So they'd have, need a woman, clergy person, gay person, you know, and they could, they could send one ticket and check off like five different things when they, <laughs> they had me to come because they fit into a several different categories, many of which are categories of otherness. But thanks be to God that the thing that some people would say could be, was meant for evil is the thing that has worked in me to bring about a life that is connected to justice and advocacy. And I am grateful in so many ways to God for it. Amen. Uh, I love that. I think maybe to close, if, like for, for those of us who are kind of at the, the very beginnings of stepping into our otherness mm-hmm. um, and learning how to use that on behalf of, of others and, and to do justice work, um, but this is a huge question, so maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe mm-hmm. we can rein it in a little bit. But mm-hmm. do you have any advice for? I mean, for those of us who are at the very starting points of our journeys, like, what what, is, what are one or two things that like have helped you keep going, stay in this work? I would I would encourage again all of the heretical's prophets out there <laughs> to know again that the only thing, the only difference between a prophet and a heretic is time. And every prophet begins being labeled as a heretic. Thanks be to God. I think the other thing that I would say to folks who are, um, are out there that are called to speak truth to power, that you will have to at, be prepared to celebrate the importance of loneliness, being alone. Because in enjoying the times alone and embracing the times when you are alone, and when I say that, I don't mean alone away from the presence of the divine. I mean alone away from the presence of people that can support you. Because sometimes the people closest to you cannot support 
some of the aha moments and the revelations that you have. So you have to be able to spend your time with your understanding of the divine, often in spaces that feel alone. But those are powerful spaces to be in. Those are important spaces. Embrace those spaces. Spend time in prayer that doesn't even need words. Prayer that is knowing. Not prayer that is saying, but prayer that is knowing. And be empowered in those moments, in in those spaces, so that when you go out from those spaces, you already have been energized. It's okay to be alone. Alone is, is a powerful place to be. Because <laughs> then Jesus did it. He used to leave the disciples and go way up in the mountain and hang out. <laughs> and then from that alone place, he would come back to the disciples. And then he and the disciples would go back to the people. Learn how to find an affirmation that is not necessarily coming from the rest of the people. Find that affirmation from inside of yourself, from your soul. Then when you go out, you can go out, be among your friends, be among your enemies, and still be confident that who you are is the designer work of God. One of my friends, Danny Bell Hall, who has passed away now, she used to sing with Andre Crouch for years, but she wrote a song that says, you're a designer's original. You're one of a kind, created by a master with one purpose in mind, to be a showcase of God's glory for the whole world to see, an example of God's beauty as God shines through you and me. I want to say to all the designers originals out there, thank God for your otherness because it's the locus of your power. And thank God for your time with God and spirit that will enable you and reinforce you and empower you to go into the world to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. Ah, thank you. You're welcome, honey. Be sure to pick up a copy of Bishop Flunder's book, Where the Edge Gathers, A Theology of Homiletic Radical Inclusion which is available wherever you buy books. And to find out more about Bishop Flunder, head over to her church's website, cityofrefugeucc.org. Choreology is on Twitter and Instagram at ChoreologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Choreology is produced with support from its listeners. To find out how you can help keep Choreology on the air, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to support the podcast is by leaving a rating and a review. Do that right in your podcast app or add to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all. Bye. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.